0: Yeah, I mean, it's still, so it's still psilocybin. I mean, it's psilocybin, the same psilocybin that's in the mushroom. It's just a purified form of a crystalline type of psilocybin, and other modifications. They take. the the normal hydrogen and they add another proton to it, and now you have a very minor kind of atomic level variation, but it does affect the metabolism in a certain way and may make the time course in the body a little bit different, generally a little bit longer. Um, And so some companies have filed deuterated versions of, of drugs because they do provide protection.
1: Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast, an official podcast for the Psychedelic Science 2023 Convention. Today, we're excited to have Mr. Graham Pachetnik as our guest in today's episode. Graham is a registered patent attorney and the founder of Calix Law, a law firm specializing in intellectual property for the cannabis and psychedelic industries. With degrees in cognitive neuroscience and biochemistry from UC San Diego and a JD from New York University. Graham has a wealth of experience in various industries, including pharmaceuticals, biotech, and technology. In 2016, he founded Calix Law to assist cannabis and psychedelic ventures in developing their IP strategies. Graham is also the editor-at-large of Psychedelic Alpha, founding steward of the IP committee of the Psychedelic Bar Association, and a member of Chakruna's Council for the Protection of Sacred Plants. Join us as we dive into an insightful conversation with Graham Pachetnik and the various workshops that he will be involved with at the Psychedelic Science 2023 convention. Please welcome Mr. Graham Pachetnik to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. I am here with Graham Pachetnik. We're an official podcast for the Psychedelic Science 2023 convention, and I'm really so excited uh, that you're here because you're going to be speaking at the convention. You've got two sessions, one on the 20th, one on the 23rd. I hope we can jump into that. Uh, But I was wondering if we can kind of start with like a little overview about your background and how you became involved with the legal aspects of cannabis and psychedelics because you've got a i mean you're in like at the forefront you're at the bleeding leading edge and uh i'm just interested how'd you get here
0: (laughs) yeah well i i mean i i feel fortunate every day to to realize that i am at the you know the forefront of the space and obviously the the space itself is at the forefront of so much else in our Mm. culture so i think we you know we can all be Uh, fortunate or hopefully feel so for you know for being involved in it and for taking some people you know the risk to align themselves with psychedelics when there's Mm -hmm. still some stigma even though it's disappearing for me i've followed an interest that's been long held in psychedelics and cannabis i was interested in them since high school and college and um, thought for a little while i would actually be someone who would make new psychedelic compounds after i learned about uh, mm-hmm. Sasha Shulgin reading his books when I was in college mm-hmm. um, and then Realized it would be difficult to or at least I was told it would be difficult to be a scientist mm-hmm. um, At the time I was in college to go to grad school to to do something in psychopharmacology or chemistry having to do with psychedelics, but it had still enough interest in them that I thought I could do some drug policy reform or, or something else involving cannabis and psychedelics and and went to law school and then somewhat quickly realized that it was a bit naive to think I could do that, especially paying my way through law school and um, didn't find a match there. But with my science background, I uh, was very heavily recruited into patent law. Mm-hmm. And that was, I suppose, the easy path. So followed that and, and spent the start of my career, close to a decade, doing patent work. And mm-hmm. so uh, writing patents, being involved in, Um, cases where we were litigating either against patents or defending our own patents Mm -hmm. Um, and then in 2016 cannabis Mm -hmm. passed uh, in California Mm -hmm. and became legal for for adult use and at that time there were a number of companies um, with people that I knew who were trying to start businesses either Mm -hmm. new businesses or they were already doing work with cannabis with legacy businesses that they wanted to Mm -hmm. bring above ground and because i was sort of one of the lawyers in my friend Mm -hmm. group um you know tried to make sense of some of the cannabis related um Mm -hmm. you know new laws for people what they could do even though that wasn't my specialty but then when i started going to some cannabis business conferences noticed that a lot of people were doing things which were actually patentable and many of them recognized they were patentable some of them didn't but in speaking to most of them uh, i learned that It was hard for a lot of people who wanted to seek patents to find a big law firm who would do patent work with a cannabis company, even if they weren't a plant touching cannabis company, because Mm -hmm. law firms are sort of risk averse and stodgy and the national ones weren't really interested in kind of sticking their necks out. Um, And at the same time, I was in a lot of conversations and heard a lot of people talk about, even when the word patent was, was raised to them um, that they were anxious about what patents would mean and they were concerned about what would happen if somebody filed patents and mm-hmm. would that be a way for big ag or big tobacco or mm-hmm. um, just generally the monopolization of the cannabis mm-hmm. industry kind of before it got off the ground and would mm-hmm. keep the you know the small businesses mm-hmm. um, from being able to pursue Uh, You know potential success in the the cannabis space, and so thought that it would be a really interesting, uh, just area to work in. Both because I had continued to be um, following the Mm -hmm. you know the the kind of development of the space and interested Mm -hmm. in cannabis culture, and you Mm -hmm. know as I said had friends in uh, the kind of cannabis space, Mm -hmm. and then also thinking about those controversies and what would it mean to to file patents, Mm -hmm. saw that kind of working with that tension mm-hmm. was something that would be, uh, just a, um, a, you know, an interesting and ho- hopefully, you know, a way to have a business in the, in the cannabis space, but a way to be thinking about those broader right. bigger picture items in a you know, in a way that was challenging and, and, right. uh, and interesting. And I guess, so I've gotten to cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that from 2016 to about 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2019, I, Realized that there were a number of companies in the uh, in the psychedelic space that were mm-hmm. similar to many of the companies in the kind of early days of cannabis patents, mm-hmm. filing a bunch of applications, particularly around psilocybin in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of conversations were, were coming up around, you know, what did this mean for the evolution of the psychedelics uh, ecosystem would this mean that the space would develop towards purely a medical or pharmaceutical mm-hmm. model What would it mean for the people in the underground who are providing psychedelic assisted therapy if they wanted to? Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you know legalized market provide those same services, Would they have to worry about Infringing some big company's patents. Mm. Would it mean that a big company could monopolize? Uh, mm-hmm. Aspects of psychedelic therapy or psychedelic compounds mm. and so sort of following the same uh, Interests, I guess, in the legal perspective, mm-hmm. and some of those, you know, the same desire to stay part of that conversation around the controversies. And then just continuing to be really interested in, in psychedelics and continuing to be um, trying to be in the kind of cultural space. I mean, living wow. in San Francisco and, uh, you know, interested in being part of psychedelics limited right. communities and, and having psychedelics be a part of my, my kind of personal and social life, too, mm-hmm. um, just made it sort of a natural fit to get there so yeah. i guess that's maybe not the crispest uh, short answer well, it's, but I, uh, I, that, that's kind of how it, i ended up with a you know a firm doing patent law in psychedelics um it's you know, just, it's it's, it's so
1: it's so weird for me grant because you know i'm like an old hippie and uh uh you know i went through the whole 60s and you know the whole um nixon era and the suppression and All of that and you know we start to see you know through the reagan era that just say no and all that and now here we are and from a from a societal viewpoint from a fundamental viewpoint we're looking at companies that are not only filing patent patents but are looking for protection along that way so you've experienced you know you've had a very impressive career some high, high high profile clients how to tell me about the patent area And specifically how it applies, you know, what patents? Are we talking about genetics in cannabis? Are we talking like Monsanto? There's a specific genetic propensity. Are we talking about like compass pathways where you are patenting uh, a combination of, you know, uh, psychedelics? And then you're looking at a process, you know, like uh, (laughs) You know, just the process of wearing eye shades, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. what is it? What is it? What is it that people are trying to patent, and why is that so important at this particular point in terms of the uh, uh, acceptability, if you will, the mainstreaming of cannabis as well as psychedelics?
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of what are people patenting? It's almost like if you can think of it, somebody has filed a patent application on it and many of these aren't successful patent applications because the thing has to be novel and non-obvious and inventive for it to be granted a patent. But there has been this sort of gold rush mentality in, in cannabis with many thousands, maybe tens of thousands now of patent applications filed and, and similarly in, in psychedelics, I would say Generally in psychedelics, the sort of first wave of patent applications that were filed were generally on known compounds uh, like psilocybin, just on the different methods that they could be used, so how to treat a different uh, set of patients with a particular indication with that compound. So Mm -hmm. almost anything you can think of for psilocybin probably has been filed, the method of using psilocybin for Mm -hmm. name the condition. Then there's maybe a second category that was around the same time filed as the first, but as companies started to realize they needed stronger IP on the compounds themselves um, to raise money for their drug development, um, modified versions of the known drugs. And so because something has to be novel and non obvious to be patented, psilocybin itself as the compound or LSD or MDMA can't be patented. Um, mm-hmm. But you can find ways to file patents on a type of that drug or a small modification of that drug. So when you mentioned Mm -hmm. compass, probably a lot of people will have heard of, and these were the first patent applications that published in the space really were compasses on a crystalline polymorph of Mm -hmm. a specific type of uh, psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And it's a small, small minor change, right? I mean, it's not like a huge huge structural change, yeah i mean it's still so, it's still
0: psilocybin i mean it's psilocybin the same psilocybin that's in the mushroom it's just a purified form of a crystalline mm-hmm. uh, type of psilocybin um, and other modifications like a number of companies have deuterated drugs which just means they take the the normal hydrogen and they add another proton to it and now you have a very minor kind of atomic level variation, but it does affect the metabolism in a certain way and may make the the time course in the body a little bit different, generally a little bit longer. Um, And so some companies have filed deuterated versions of of drugs because they do provide protection. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of that set also takes advantage of the fact that with the regulatory requirements Mm -hmm. Those types of drugs can generally rely on some of the regulatory data, the preclinical data and sometimes some of the clinical data with the unmodified drugs. So if you have deuterated DMT or deuterated psilocybin, Mm -hmm. you can sort of piggyback on some of the known safety data, some of the already published clinical research to um, be able to accelerate your development. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you get a little bit better. IP protection Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe a little bit of a lag compared to just trying to get MDMA or psilocybin through FDA as maps and compass are doing Um, but you can just kind of strike a balance a number of the other patent applications filed and this is a big category and this is most of the work that we do is with wholly novel compounds so these are compounds that have Mm -hmm. generally never been uh uh presumably because they have to be novel to be protectable Mm -hmm. have never been uh you know made before or tested before or Mm -hmm. used before in humans um and so these will have you know the whole development pathway ahead of them will have to go through safety and toxicity and put through all three phases of clinical trials Mm -hmm. and so maybe many years before they're uh you know if they're shown to be safe and effective in clinical trials before they're approved by the fda and and commercialized and of course that goal of finally getting a new drug to the clinic and to patients is the reason that patents uh you know kind of serve a purpose in the pharmaceutical space it's because you know if there wasn't protection or the Mm-hmm. There is something else you know, that we could talk about with data protection, which like MapS is trying to use, as it would provide five years before a generic launched. But putting aside that type of regulatory exclusivity, without the patent exclusivity, uh, you know, a generic could launch mm-hmm. a competing drug, um, and by having a competing drug on the market, the original drug manufacturer. Mm-hmm. knowing that wouldn't have the incentive initially to you know invest all the hundreds of millions of dollars it might cost to take a drug through development. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. patents provide the ability to you know, recoup those mm-hmm. um, those expenses and therefore attract the investment to bring drugs to market to begin with. So at least that's right. the argument for why we have have patents
1: right. Um, I mean, and you know at the at the maps uh, psychedelic science convention, we're going to have like literally um, everyone. You know on both sides Mm -hmm. of the aisle the establishment right and then Mm -hmm. the anti-establishment there and you know there is this whole tension between uh you know those who take uh ethnogens and you know go ahead and take out the the roots of them and then turn them into you know like monsanto turn them into these you know the these super drugs that are supposed to be you know better and or uh, you know, configured in a way that really allows them to manage them or control them, uh, and the process around them. Um, you know, and I, I'm I'm just as because you 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 talked about earlier your science background. You got some you you changed. You had a you know, from what I understand, looking at your bio, you had your first experience with psychedelics inspired you to choose uh, your choice of science majors. And I'm just wondering, as you look at your background there and you look at your experience and you look at what's happening in the marketplace, um, Mm -hmm. you know, where do you see this potentially this tension going between the establishment and the anti-establishment? Do you think there's enough room in the tent for all of them?
0: I mean, I certainly hope so, and you know, I think this is one of the biggest questions just about the space, is Mm -hmm. where it'll be in five years, or or twenty years. You know, somebody once called me an optimistic pluralist, and I've kind of Mm -hmm. held on to that definition, because I I think it was a really good one. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do like to think that, you know, a rising tide uh,
1: lifts all boats?
0: The sort of mainstreaming, yeah, that that being the tide, will lift all boats, and there's not going to be um, any form of conflict that prevents one way of uh, people approaching psychedelics and the way that they would find preferable from from being uh, either allowed or uh, you know, easily accessible. Right. So, um, you know, one of the controversies is around patents and one of the ones that has certainly attracted me to be critical with patents potentially has been were pharmaceutical companies to file patents on the ways of using psychedelics, would those be used against uh, practitioners in legal markets like in Oregon or in Colorado?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, would those be used in a way that they spread beyond the uh, kind of protection of the pharmaceutical version of a psychedelic to, you know, other forms of, of contact with, with mm-hmm. psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there have been some warning signs there and going back to cannabis uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's stories about when uh, GW Pharma was uh, seeking approval for rapid dialects which is just CBD. Mm-hmm. You know, they had lobbyists who are trying to keep CBD and, and other uh, you know cannabis-based products from being easily mm-hmm. accessible on dispensary shelves, since mm-hmm. they, you know presumably it would cut into their market. So, um, you know, certainly I think there are reasons to be concerned potentially about the companies who are seeking. FDA approval from potentially standing in the way of legalization efforts at state levels or Mm -hmm. seeking to, you know, stand in the way of other access to psychedelics that would Hmm. minimize the market, so to speak for, you know, for, for people who want to, um, able to seek the benefits Mm -hmm. of psychedelics but Mm -hmm. you know hopefully there there is space for everybody and i I do think that there are and certainly you know many people i believe would agree with this that there are many people um who would prefer to have access to psychedelics through one one particular way or another i mean i think my parents for example would be much more likely to want a prescription from Mm -hmm. a, a doctor and you know see somebody in a more um you know, established kind of clinical environment for their Mm -hmm. first, you know, psychedelic experiences or their friends might, rather than um, going to a um, you know, an ayahuasca ceremony or or, or going to a a rave or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or going to a rave, certainly, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I think that you know, that I always go back to the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, and this whole mm-hmm. idea of uh, self actualization or transformation and, you know, the ability to kind of get there and how psychedelics really do help from a pathway viewpoint uh, for people to at least start to look at their lives and, you know, kind of make sense of the stories or the narratives around their lives you uh, we I, I said before you know uh in your bio you mentioned your experiences has that impacted you in terms of these experience uh, has that shaped your personal and professional journey can you are you okay with speaking to that for a moment because you you have a you have a rare you know what what did you call yourself what did people call you they they called hmm, you an no uh, opt, optimistic a pluralist, pluralist. An optimistic pluralist. I maybe we can unpack that as well <laughs> because uh, the, you know that's that's a very interesting term. So, you know, you're in a position of helping people in a number of areas, whether or not they're personal, you know, practitioners or uh, corporate corporates that are looking to go ahead and obviously with the gold rush, the psychedelic gold rush help them to go ahead and put their properties in a position, patent position to go ahead and do that. I'm just wondering how 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 does this all play with your with your experiences and your understanding of the marketplace and how is it how has it tempered your you know, your your perspective as you go ahead and work with people?
0: Yeah, I mean that, that is a really good question. I mean, I think the way that I'm able to remain a pluralist or or be a pluralist is just because Um, I do have some fairly non-overlapping spheres of Mm -hmm. um, the way I contact psychedelics in kind of my life and my work. I mean, as a patent lawyer, almost all the companies I work with are in drug discovery that are trying to come up with new drugs that they will patent and then develop through the clinical pathway to FDA approval. And then they would be, you know, prescribable mm-hmm. by a psychiatrist or a doctor, mm-hmm. um, for patients who have mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. I, myself, despite having experience with psychedelics, I've never had a psychedelic experience with a, uh, a psychotherapist or mm-hmm. for specific purposes of dealing with a mental health condition. And so maybe I'm fortunate in that way, but I've generally, had psychedelic experiences that one might call recreational even though i you know i can imagine certainly and especially you know looking back they've been therapeutic but as you mentioned in the rave context or you know at festivals or you know just uh you know weekends um you know camping or you know doing art in a airbnb with friends or you right. know ways certainly that aren't um the types of things that people bringing uh, you know, patenting and bringing drugs through through clinical trials, or or thinking about, and so I have, you know, deep um, appreciation for uh, psychedelics being used in those in those ways. And you know, I haven't um, been somebody who's spent a lot of time at ayahuasca ceremonies. I mean, I've done I've done some, but I know a lot of lawyers who are colleagues of mine who would spend their work with psychedelics, working with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, I mean, I, I know you just had on Alison Hoots, who's a, you know, a colleague and a, and a friend, and I have you know great appreciation for that way of um, being able to access uh, psychedelics as a sacrament and, you know, in mm-hmm. ceremonial forms. And so um, I certainly do have a concern that there can be a tension in the desire to, say, commercialize psychedelics, how that can impact. Uh, you know, the other ways, Um, even if it's not necessarily Hmm. companies who are seeking to prevent the other types of Mm -hmm. um, access to psychedelics, but maybe just as all these forms start to get more and more mainstreamed, I mean, what is it that we're hearing um, in the news? What is it we're hearing on the the view? Like, what is it that we, uh, we, I guess, as a broader culture are first coming into contact with Mm -hmm. um, when we're, you know, hearing about psychedelics, when we're, Uh, Kind of internalizing this Mm. change, this evolution in from Mm. um, prohibition to acceptance, Mm -hmm. is that acceptance going to be biased towards thinking of these as new pharmaceutical kind of miracle drugs, that kind of replacements to SSRIs or -hmm. you know anti-anxiety drugs or you know something like that, or or are they going to be something that really transforms our culture in some other ways? So. I uh, may have lost the plot a little bit from your question, but no, I guess that's kind I kind of, I of being aspect. a pluralist. Is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, a, trying to balance pluralist. everything at once.
1: That's great. It's both ends. And I like that because there's enough room uh, in the tent for everybody in your perspective. And certainly, the, I think going back to what you said before is so true. When we start taking a look at the research and the funding and the development and the market, for psychedelics, there are certain companies that are funding the marketplace to go ahead and look at legalization and acceptability because you can't just go in and have a rave over at the VA. You know, and the, you know, when we start taking a look at the rigor and the requirements to go ahead and follow the rigor and the science that comes out of that based on that research. You know that's really what's being used let's show me show me show me the money yes but show me the documentation and the facts the efficacy rates that show me that this actually works and show me how you're going to make it safe so that i don't have to worry about you know somebody you know freaking out and you know running across the road and getting hit by a car you know god forbid
0: yeah 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 i mean I, i do think maybe just one more thing to add is i do think these different Ways of psychedelics coming to our culture are very complementary too. I mean, I, I can see that the medicalization path has been, in a large way, what has allowed mainstream culture to start lowering yeah. what the the stigma is for these drugs because they've been shown to be so successful in treating uh, different conditions. And you know, can see the work that you know, maps certainly paved over many many decades as being so. So critical for this, right. um, but at the same time, uh, if it was just medicalization and not cultural changes, I think just doing psychedelics and all going back to our lives as usual, uh, we just return to the same social structures that, right. uh, in many cases, you know, made the dysfunction there to create mental disorders in the first place. And so, you know, having these as cultural tools rather than just as individual. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, health tools, I think, is, is something that's really important.
1: Yeah, well, what, what you're talking about to me also talks about agency, you know, having agency, self-agency. And I think part of the challenge, I mean, uh, I don't, I'm sure you saw the news in Kentucky, there's 140, mm-hmm. billion, 140 million uh, in terms of research using Ibogaine for opioid addiction. Uh, I just had a conversation with Andrew Tatarski yesterday who's helping oh. to lead up that area for harm reduction. And we started taking a look at the uh, opportunities for psychedelics to really help with addiction, help with PTSD, help with trauma in all kinds of ways. So, you know, just having that efficacy there and that agency is important. You're an advocate for cognitive liberty. Can you explain what the term means to you and why you think it's essential in the context of psychedelic laws and certainly for individuals? For those people, you know, cognitive liberty is, as I understand it, I had to look it up. It's the right to mental self determination, is the freedom of an individual to control their own mental process and cognition. And that's big because, you know, that whole area, and certainly in the addiction field, we talk about, you know, addiction is when somebody doesn't have agency or in this particular case, I would say cognitive liberty to be able to control mm-hmm. their role and destiny. They're kind of doing things that they don't want to be doing because they don't have agency over their lives. Tell me your perspective in terms of the laws and how it all plays in because of your... Advocacy.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I guess I should start by saying it's it's not so much my advocacy that's had any um, you know impact in this area. You know, I've, I've not myself been a um, you know an advocate for it, so to speak. Although it's been certainly a, the seed. I think that in a large way got me to law school because mm-hmm. thinking that that was a uh, you know a way to stay in contact with the, the psychedelics space mm-hmm. as a lawyer. Um, I think your definition really set it out well. I mean, if I were to try to summarize what I thought, I guess, quickly, I mean, it's mm-hmm. really, the, you know, the right to control one's consciousness, mm-hmm. I suppose. And and, obvious, uh, and I think people who think about cognitive liberty have often set it out as sort of two uh, kind of mm-hmm. different um, aspects. I mean, so one is a freedom from interference with mm-hmm. your consciousness or your ways of thought. Um, and the other is the freedom to have uh, mm-hmm. your own thought, your own cognitive processes, your own consciousness, and that generally is the the area where um, it interfaces with drug policy, or uh, you know the ability to to use drugs. So, uh, mm-hmm. if somebody takes psychedelics, I think it you know goes without saying that 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 has a you know big impact on your consciousness, mm-hmm. um, and so you know the prohibition from being able to take uh, psychedelics or a drug like that um, is therefore you know restricting one's ability to you know enter those types of conscious states um and i think part of the question perhaps you asked was sort of how how i became interested in this or you know what what Mm -hmm. the kind of impact of, of it to me was um i mean i think when i first really started thinking about it was in you know in college and maybe a little bit before in high school when i was uh perhaps even just trying to justify my own drug use but also just as you know kind of a, a teenager thinking like well this is kind of irrational and unfair that there are these laws against a thing that like doesn't harm anybody else and you know having sort of a superficial understanding of the kind of classical liberal thought i guess that we learn in in high school that our you know country is founded on you know the, the right of you know liberty when it doesn't impinge on. And self-determination. Yeah, um,
1: self-determination, you
0: know, others, yeah. Yeah, it's self-determination, um, you know the, the right to do what we wish as long as it doesn't uh, mm-hmm. impact others and really seeing, you know, the prohibition against drug use as being just so clearly in violation of that in, in such a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became, um, I think, partly because uh, n- another reason I, I think I may have wanted to go to law school is I was kind of a... An argumentative person, for, and thought like maybe I could put my argumentative skills to use to um, find a way to demonstrate that this was just so clear. It seemed so clear that um, this was just such an illogical stance for mm-hmm. um, uh, you know for for the law to take. I mean, I, I think that you know re- reflects also the naivete of a you know high school or college student thinking you could um, mm-hmm. you know argue your way out of something that. Drug policy reformers have been doing for decades, uh, unsuccessfully. Right. But, um, but so, uh, yeah. I guess I'm. You know, I, I started thinking about it in in college. I had also I was working in a neuroscience lab or in the mm-hmm. cognitive science department. The the lab right one over was um, studying brain computer interfaces. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that they were thinking about a lot, and we spent some time thinking about, is um, the laws that would prohibit um, enhancements and. Um, mental mm-hmm. capacity and, and so cognitive liberty was you know thought of from the perspective of um, being able to use drugs but also being able to you know even enhance our thought and you know in mm-hmm. dis- different ways by
1: right um, right right so uh, open up the neural connections and have a broader consciousness if you will and uh you know i think that one one of the things that came up for me in in this in this definition was really understanding like back in the 60s and 70s it was like you know, people were turning on, tuning in, dropping out and really kind of blaming the establishment and the man, you know, the man was, the man was the problem. The man was the problem. And of course, you know, Nixon's war on drugs and and Reagan's war on drugs really was to go ahead and sweep that clean in a, in a number of areas, because that was threatening. And it seems to me that there is some, uh, there is some concern around that opportunity you know certainly if not from a governmental viewpoint which is why the legislation is so important but also from the even the psychiatric community i mean you know when people have cognitive liberty why do they mm-hmm. need a psychiatrist you know if they if mm. they, if they if, if they feel good about who they are and they feel in connection with the world you know, why do I need a, you know, why do I need an SSRI? Why don't I, why do I need the pharmaceutical industry? You know, there's a lot of kind of backlash. We had the same thing happen with cannabis back in reefer madness days when, you know, we were looking at Reynolds company and we're looking at, you know, the ability to use cannabis to go ahead and replace, you know, one acre of cannabis versus acres of, of trees, you know, Mm the real opportunity there. So, it's a it's a it's a real interesting perspective and a real interesting insight I don't know how we're gonna unpack that in the time yeah I mean I
0: don't, I don't uh, know how it's <laughs> operationalized and I, I you know I'm not the expert I would recommend people read Charlotte Walsh has written a lot of articles on cognitive Liberty in particular on cognitive Liberty and, and psychedelics um that can you know lay things out much more than, than I can Charlotte, Charlotte, Charlotte Walsh Remember Charlotte, Charlotte. Walsh
1: okay mm-hmm.
0: yeah um yeah but I mean, I do think it may make up a, because I think you asked also about the sort of importance of it. I mean, there yeah. are many other ways, and it's probably not been a main focus, at least uh, in the kind of current efforts to to legalize, at least mm-hmm. at the kind of forefront. Um, but uh, as the others maybe kind of reach their terminus and, and hopefully are adopted. So, for instance, like with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as... we see the the um, Mm rights-based ability to for religious purposes have access to psychedelics or for people who are unhealthy in some way having access to psychedelics as a treatment for them Um, you know uh, many of these things maybe should be uh, handled first and maybe the legal rights for uh, religious use Mm -hmm. and for use in, in treatment and as therapies are, are perhaps um, should be given greater weight than people who want to just enhance themselves. But once we get beyond um, those, what about the kind of healthy individuals that just want to use psychedelics for, for fun or to change their consciousness or, you know, things yeah. that maybe aren't given as much weight um, by society. And so there's still perhaps, uh, you know, at the, the, the end of these other um, kind mm-hmm. of changes. Uh, a space for for relying on uh, this type of legal argument to to still to right. find a way to make sure that you know everybody has um, access to
1: right. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's just another way to uh, tune in. You know, another way mm-hmm. uh, instead of tuning into the TV all night. You know, why not have a a mind altering or a non ordinary state of consciousness that you can go ahead and relate to in a more creative way. And that's kind of what you're saying, that people should have a right to that as well. Yeah?
0: yeah, I mean, if we think about, and this is maybe somewhat unjust, but if we think about cognitive liberty as being a freedom from interference mm-hmm. uh, in our thought and freedom of thought, maybe we should be uh, prohibiting uh, people from uh, using things like uh, certain, aspects, certain types of social media or certain TV, because that does mm-hmm. interfere with our ability to have Uh, independent thought sometimes
1: right right Um, and and, and i i love the idea of having independent thought when we're well programmed to think otherwise you know or to (laughs) be a part of the system that we didn't necessarily invent And our you know we i don't know whether or not you know there uh, we can get into the we we can jump down the rabbit hole in this one um let me ask you um in terms of the convention um, uh, you're, you've got these two sessions. Uh, can you talk about those sessions? One's on the 20th, the other one's on the 23rd. What are they all about? Because I know you're, um, you're involved, uh, with, uh, the psychedelic bar association and you're also a member of the Shakaruna council for the protection of sacred plants. So I'm just wondering how, how does this all kind of come together and in, in those sessions when you're at the uh, convention and what can we possibly expect from you know those sessions
0: sure well so I do have two sessions the first session is part of a workshop put on by the psychedelic Bar Association which as you mentioned I'm involved with um, I was the founding steward of the IP committee um, which was uh, still is a group of uh, a couple dozen IP lawyers who are interested in psychedelics and part of the um, the PBA. Um, and I'm now also on the board of the, the PBA. So I'm mm. very honored to be able to be um, involved in that way. And so this is a legal workshop for people who are interested in the uh, the different legal aspects of, um, of psychedelics. And there's a number so, of different so sessions. So if
1: you're a lawyer and you want to be, if you want, if you've already, you know, you're involved in the space in one way or another, and you wanted to be a member of the psychedelic bar association you could apply given your background or given your credentials is that kind of yeah, the way? yeah
0: absolutely so it's, we're mostly lawyers there are some non-lawyers uh, some patent agents actually also um who are part and the pba will have a booth uh at, at during the convention so I, I certainly would invite anybody who's a, a lawyer or has any involvement uh, in the legal world just to, to stop by and to to talk mm-hmm. to us and certainly to join uh, if interested um so this panel i'm putting on with a colleague of mine chris burns who's <laughs> also a, a patent attorney um another attorney rebecca lee whiting who is the general counsel of journey Colab, a company that's been developing synthetic mescaline for alcohol <laughs> use disorder uh, and she also has a, a law firm where she does work with uh, startups in the psychedelic <laughs> space and in other areas uh, and Joseph Barsulia, who's done a lot of research with 5MEO, DMT, and, and ibogaine, um, and has uh, been um, someone who's really stood up for the uh, the rights of um, ibogaine in particular, and has mm-hmm. a lot of really, I think, meaningful things to say about the Nagoya Protocol and the um, type of um, means for for bringing. Uh, psychedelics ethically to uh, to people and so our panel actually is about um, ways of using ethical IP mm-hmm. and so we'll be discussing what some of the you know, the kind of the downsides of how IP has been used and and trying to think of ways we can change our uh, you know our, our interaction with the IP system and you mm-hmm. know, even with uh, with patents um, mm-hmm. so as to you know avoid some of the um the ways that they can be problematic for the psychedelic space and hopefully um do that in a way that's potentially not just inspiring for the psychedelic space where the the ethos is a little bit different than it is um mm-hmm. sort of in the broader world at large generally mm-hmm. but you know th- think of ways even to um, potentially mm-hmm. reimagine the the patent system um more broadly so that's uh, so that's, on the, twi- really that's on the that's on the 20th, 20th. yeah, okay, yeah and as part of a a mm-hmm. half-day workshop put on by the mm-hmm. PBA. And then the conversation on Friday mm-hmm. is also about patents, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking along with uh, Red Sina Meyer, who's the head of corporate strategy for Delix Therapeutics. Um, Delix has focused on non-psychedelics. psychedelic uh, It's um, started by David Olson, who was at Davis, who um, coined the term psychoplastogens. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interesting. And you know, many of the things we talked about today... Uh, um i don't think we necessarily got into how um psychedelics have taken a turn at least with patents i kind of forgot to mention some of the novel compounds have been without psychedelic effects and so Mm -hmm. um you know what does it mean to have drugs that are inspired by psychedelics but don't actually cause any subjective experience and um and so so we'll just so, so
1: just so we can unpack that for a moment so yeah, yeah. Uh, psychedelic non-psychedelics are without the journey or without the uh, hallucinatory uh impact of what a psychedelic would be but with the opportunity to uh quiet the default mode network the part of the brain that really is the meaning making side of the brain to really or the amygdala and really help you to uh confront or deal with in a in a psychotherapeutic way or in a biological way a physiological way to come to terms with some some issues is it did i describe that right or i mean i think that, you, i think
0: i think that might deeper? be the case i don't i don't i mean so nobody has been able to demonstrate that yet just because mm-hmm. the psychoplastogens have not yet been um trialed in humans mm-hmm. so there's evidence that they uh, cause neuroplasticity so you know we can see dendrite growth for instance um in nerve cells but you know they haven't been um administered to humans where the humans have been put in fmri machines to you know show the sort of quieting of the default mode network that we've seen in you know trials with psilocybin and lsd right um but, but maybe that's uh, ahead for them uh, certainly you know once they're so, administered so, that, to, to humans so that's where can, the
1: patent that's where the patents come in and that's where the trials and the research comes in, huh?
0: Yeah, there's still a lot of research to be done with non-psychedelics. Uh, non psychedelic mm-hmm. um, And so, besides Delix, uh, we'll also be joined by C.C. Lee who's at Porta mm-hmm. Sophia as the Senior Data Architect Lead. And mm-hmm. Porta Sophia has played an important role in the psychedelic space. There's been a lot of criticism around psychedelic patents being granted on things that were already in the public domain Mm -hmm. and one explanation for that is because patent examiners either aren't familiar with the prior art as it's called just whatever's known and has been published around psychedelics they you know they missed it so they didn't realize something was already done was you know not novel or not obvious or just that that sort of prior art isn't Anywhere that would be available to a patent examiner, it's buried in archives, or it's uh, oral traditions, or it's um, just harder to find, or it's on you know websites like Arrowid or Blue Light or someplace that are uh, you know a patent examiner is not going to go to. So Portus Sophia's tried to make all that information more accessible to patent examiners to make it easier for good patents great, to be Great
1: granted. name there, Sophia. Yeah, love Porta that.
0: Sophia, yeah, doorway to, to wisdom, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And then um, Jonathan Sporn, the CEO, and um, he's also board chairman at Gilgamesh Pharmaceuticals, so another of mm-hmm. uh, the psychedelic um, drug discovery and right. development companies, uh, who's also working with a, a number of uh, different drugs that are based on uh, the same sorts of scaffolds as, as psychedelics, tryptamines, and... Mm-hmm. Being like compounds and phenethylamines and so uh, i think in that compound i mean in that uh panel you know we'll discuss the perspectives of uh what people think about patents as drug discovery uh companies and you know what what it means for them to be patenting things and then um you know with with cc i think we'll be mm-hmm. able to really discuss what it means to have bad patents in the space or
1: you know conflicts Interesting. So, like, we, we we go from that end to, and I mentioned uh, Shakaruna uh, earlier. So, and then you're on the Council of the Shakaruna uh, Protection of Sacred Plant Council. So, how does your work with that organization, you know, I know you're pluralist, so, you know, we, we've got that straight. <laughs> so, how does that tie into... You know where we see the goals for the psychedelic industry overall. I mean, is there is there where do you see the intersection of those two? You know, organizations, if you will, the you know on the one hand, the pharmaceutical company that's looking to patent, looking to go ahead from a biotech viewpoint, looking to go ahead and take it to market, and on the other hand, uh, an organization that really is looking to protect the sacred plants and the sacred wisdom that's there and in some cases don't doesn't want to hear about you know what's happening in the pharmaceutical area or wants to apply certainly wants to Mm -hmm. apply this indigenous wisdom in some way towards that marketplace i'm wondering your thoughts around that and this is you know I, i i it's a good segue towards like bringing us towards our goal here, which is you know going to the convention, right? So yeah, so tell me your thoughts.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think our our goal for the convention, I and mean, my goal for the convention, but I think maybe it's all of our goal for the convention is to be in a space where there's, I think there may even be more than ten thousand tickets sold ultimately. I know that was uh, at least a goal of uh, of Maps, yep. and of all those people, there will be people representing every type of uh, you know, interest in the space and, and hope for the space and um, way of being in the space and no- knowledge about the space. And so there'll be so many different types of people to, to learn from and hopefully to have conversations with. Uh, and That, you know, in a smaller sense, is the reason why I feel really fortunate to be able to be part of Chagrinus Council for Protection of Sacred Plants because in my work, as I've said a couple of times, it's really focused on drug discovery and companies that are, you know, venture backed and want to have uh, their compounds um, go through the clinical trial process and become, uh, you know, approved drugs. And that's very different from the type of work that Chakuna is trying to protect the traditional traditional and indigenous uses of, um, right. particularly ayahuasca, but other but other compounds uh, and other medicines. And so I think it's, uh, it feels critical to me to be able to hear from both sides and to um, Mm. find ways to sometimes resolve tensions or try to resolve tensions. I mean, that's part of the spirit that animates the um, Mm. ethical IP conversation. And uh, Mm -hmm. as part of Shakuna, we had a whole series on patenting the sacred about, uh, Mm. you know, what it meant to be filing patents on natural compounds or uh, compounds that had histories of traditional use. Mm. Um, Really?
1: Well, Shakuna did that, huh? Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so. So we're we going to be um, able to. We're going to be able to patent the sacred. I mean.
0: Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's the question. Like, does even patenting something kind of take the sacred out of it? I mean. Right. So. Um, yeah, once there, you define you know,
1: something, you you lose the definition of it, really. So you know. Yeah. Somewhere yeah,
0: but but hopefully, in 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 patenting, uh, at least some aspects of psychedelics, we're not taking the sacred away from. Uh, psychedelics in, in general and so you know th- this right. is i guess uh just staying with the pluralistic mm-hmm. aspect of it uh, or at least the optimistic part of the optimistic pluralist aspect of it i mean I, you know i hope we do keep the keep the sacred and even if maybe we don't find the the sacred um, although i certainly people do <laughs> people do even when they're having it in a medical context i mean um you know the, the mystical experiences. Uh, not one that hides from from anybody at a high enough dose of psychedelics. Um,
1: well, so. I think I think you're I think you're straddling. Um, it's you know it's exciting to listen to you, Graham, and you know to hear the work you're doing because you really are straddling both sides of this conversation. And you know um, whether or not it's from the sacred viewpoint or the you know the uh, uh, biotech viewpoint or whether or not it's from you know everything in between, which really speaks to the cognitive liberty that we've talked about in this psychedelic space, which is give me the opportunity to make my own choices. How I want to make the choice might be different for me than for you, but still respect that and give me the opportunity and the liberty to do that. So, you know, when we start taking a look at this event, you know, the convention is going to be very exciting. Everyone's coming together. You're going to be there. You're going to have your event on the 20th and the 23rd and you've you've got your 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 practice how do people get a hold of you to find out a little bit more about what you're up to if they can't make the convention or they want to find out about you know your practice and in general maybe they have some ideas or maybe they have a you know a patentable uh product that they're looking for help with Mm -hmm. um well
0: i'm i'm on Twitter, I, though I've been there less lately, but I'm um, Kalix Law on Twitter. I'm pretty much Kalix Law everywhere. And uh, our firm is Kalix Law, so I'm fairly easy to find. And I'm wow. Graham at Kalix. Law. I'm happy to uh, mm-hmm. receive emails there. Um, I would definitely recommend um, people um, look up Chakuna if they haven't heard of them. Besides the patenting the sacred series, there's really an enormous wealth of other webinars and materials and. Um, right. Much, much of uh, you know what we talked about today, just in passing, has you know some deeper resource there. Uh, certainly, for anybody who's involved in the the legal system as a lawyer or as a paralegal or uh, any other way, should should check out the Psychedelic Bar Association. Um, and um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm also editor at large at Psychedelic Alpha, where I post patent trackers, and we also host a policy map along with a merge law group that has the current status of legalization and decriminalization efforts across all the states uh in the US and soon to be posted uh around the world. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a good resource and has a really good weekly newsletter. Um mm-hmm. and so those would probably be the best places to keep in touch, I think.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, you're 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 really very um you're very, I don't know, you've got a real kind of peaceful vibe about you. I don't <laughs> know, uh, you know, it's, uh, and 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 I certainly would love to work with you in some respect. If I, if I had a patent uh, that was ready to go to market, I don't yet, uh, but uh, who knows what'll happen with that. I want to thank you, Graham, for being with us today. I really look forward to hearing more about your insights and experiences as we explore the world of psychedelic laws and your mindful approach to them as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to seeing you, uh, when, uh, somewhere among the 10,000 people that'll be there. It's going to be, it's going to be a sacred experience in and of itself.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And yeah, thank you for asking me to, to join you here. And, and hopefully what seems like my calm is not just my, uh, being being tired at the end of, uh, Friday, but, uh, but no, I'm really pleased to be able to join you here. And, uh, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you hopefully in Denver.
1: Thank you for listening to the mindfulness experience podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at WorkMindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the mindfulness experience. This is Keith Fiveson.